Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr, and we're coming to you from Film Scene in downtown Iowa City. Thank you for joining us. It's a full house this afternoon, and we're happy to have you all here. As you know, this program today is all about Don Quixote, wonderful novel, 400 years old, having a big celebration this year. And our friends in the Spanish department have uh, prepared some wonderful things for tonight and a big symposium happening in October. So uh, we're going to be happy to talk about things that are coming up in the future that you can plan for and start out with just a discussion of this wonderful novel. Uh, tonight's show will offer a preview of this symposium, uh, which is uh, the Oberman International, Program, International Programs Humanities Symposium. It will be held on October 22nd to 24th, and uh, the public is invited to attend those events. And as far as uh, World Canvas is concerned, this is the first program of this season, and uh, we do one program a month, although October will be different. We'll have two programs in October, and you can find all of that detail on the International Programs website. So thank you for coming tonight, and I hope you'll enjoy yourself. So, tonight we're discussing Don Quixote's four-century saga, and our guests in this first segment are Denise Filios, just next to me here, and Ana Rodriguez-Rodriguez. Nice to have you here. Um, you are both associate professors in the Department of Spanish here at the, the University of Iowa in the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences, and um, I know that you both teach Don Quixote. Why was it important to the two of you to create this very massive symposium that will be coming up and all the related events? I'll, I'll go to you first, Anna. Well, I can say that I've been teaching Don Quixote since 2009 here in Iowa, and um, to my surprise, actually, the first couple of times I taught this course, it creates such uh, enthusiasm in students, and it's definitely my favorite class, uh, both in undergraduate classes and graduate classes. So. As we realized that 2015 was coming closer, we talked and we, we thought it would be a great idea to celebrate this great book uh, that we already knew that, would, that had something still to say to students from Iowa and to the community in Iowa, and we organized all these activities. We love Don Quixote, both of us. We know it's a wonderful book, and we just want to share you know, the, the news. <laughs> Well, I know that, that you can both just chime in on this next question, but one thing, of course, I want us to do is sort of talk about the novel, what it's all about, what was happening at the time Cervantes wrote this book, and uh, what he may be uh, joking about or uh, making fun of, uh, and so on. But then also, um, what was groundbreaking about this particular work? Why is this considered to be the first modern novel? So you can start anywhere you like with those questions. And, uh, and uh, Ana, can you, can you continue to give us a little bit yeah, of background fine. on Cervantes? And yeah, first mm -hmm. we can start talking about the author, about Cervantes. Uh, Cervantes was born in the middle of the 16th century, and he has a very interesting life. I think there should be a good novel about Cervantes' life, actually. He traveled around, the, around Europe. Um, he was in Italy, he was a captive in Algiers for five years, which I think is an, an experience that changed his, his life forever and his approach to literature also and to art. Uh, then he was a soldier, uh, he was a tax guy, he was collecting taxes for a while, he was, got in trouble because of some problems with money that we don't know exactly what happened. Uh, and he loved reading and he loved writing. He tried different genres. Uh, poetry didn't work out so well. He's not a very good poet. <laughs> you can do everything well, right? And he tried being a playwright, but he, the big Lope de Vega got in his way, and he was changing the way that plays were written. 
So Cervantes kept trying. That's why I always tell my students, keep trying. You know, it could happen like with Cervantes. And then finally he found, he found what, what really could change literature, which is the novel, which was not actually the most, it was the most popular genre at the time, but not the most intellectually admired. So he took some risks there, and, and I think he, he just started to experiment. And actually, because it's a novel, and it doesn't have all those constraints that history, for example, had, I think he had the freedom to experiment and give us what he gave us, the wonderful Don Quixote. Denise, mm-hmm. let me ask you to, uh, to tell us a little bit about the character, the main mm-hmm. character and his, mm-hmm. and his sidekick. Mm-hmm. I'm actually a medievalist, and so part of what Don Quixote is a parody of is the chivalric novels, which really is a sort of medieval ideal, a code of conduct that never actually existed in the real world. It was only a literary phenomenon. And so the idea of writing a parody of chivalry by having this mad knight who reads too many chivalric novels and sort of believes that the world works like that, and then going out into the world and encountering workers or going into an inn and imagining that they're all kings and knights and he wants to get dubbed by the innkeeper. It's just completely ridiculous. And it may be that, Don, it may be that Cervantes wished to destroy the chivalric novel by writing this parody, but he also incorporated so many elements of the chivalric novel that he sort of perpetuated it. Yeah. And then, of course, there's so many imitations and continuing of Don Quixote people well, we can talk about the plagiarism later. But um, he decided to add this fascinating character, Sancho Panza, to be his sidekick. And Don Quixote is tall and skinny and old. Sancho Panza is sort of short. He's sort of fat. He's very sort of earthy, um, grotesque sometimes. And so that particular comic pairing really... I think that's part of the reason why Don Quixote continues to be so popular today, that it's a comic duo that we recognize immediately and that we respond to. We can identify with Don Quixote, we can identify with Sancho, and maybe a little bit more Sancho-like, but we can, I can see parts of myself in Don Quixote too. His confessed goal was mm, destroying these books that Denise just mentioned with knights and everything. But he ended up doing something much more than that. He ended up doing a, a book about dreams, about freedom, about friendship, about love, about, about, about life, basically. So that's why we're talking about Don Quixote today. And we're talking about Don Quixote, about Don Quixote as something that is alive. Because he's talking, this book talks about us, about human beings, uh, the travel that human beings have to go through, and how actually literature and art are part of this world and how they can help us and how they can guide us and how they can be obstacles somewhere. And, and what I like most about Don Quixote is that it teaches us some lessons about human relations. That's, to me, that's the main, let's say, I don't like to say message because I don't think there is a particular message and, you know, some mystic or mysterious message, message hidden in the book. I don't think that's how we should read Don Quixote. But there is definitely some mm, main objective to make us think about all these issues, issues without giving us solutions, but giving us you know, the, the questions to try to find the answers ourselves. And it's just so funny and so charming. You read the first couple of chapters, you know, you're just sucked in right away. Uh, I think most readers are because of the description of this uh, mm-hmm. 
country gentleman and uh, and his delusions and the fact that his the people who work in his house have either given away or burned or hidden all of his books. I don't remember what they did, but they get rid of all of those books because they know that they've infected his mind. And and then uh, you know the way he creates his armor, all of these things. It is so funny, and you know, and yet I at least didn't feel that he's a crazy old lunatic. I felt like wow. What, what a, it's such a wonderful picture of a person who's made his, his image of the world, who sees mm-hmm. the world in mm-hmm. his mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. And then with the, with the Sancho character, who is, who is kind of saying, yeah, I, don't, I think those are actually sheep, but, <laughs> you know, uh, but he kind of plays along. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 So yeah it's very interesting that in many ways, Alonso Quijano, or whatever his name is, he yeah. decides to remake himself as he wishes his life were. It's almost like he writes his life story anew mm-hmm. when he chooses to adopt this identity of Don Quixote, and then he tries to live that. Um, I've, I've read uh, something recently that suggested that Don Quixote could be read as a live-action role-playing game, that he <laughs> is adopting the character of Don Quixote and then going out into the world and then interacting with real people who don't know that he's playing a character. Mm-hmm. And the way that they interact with him yeah. is very interesting to reveal, well, their character as well as, of course, that of Don Quixote. Yeah. Right. And so what would Don Quixote do? Which is a very good little motto. Yeah, that's my Bob Steger in my oh. <laughs> Well, you said that your students really like this book. Oh, yeah. they do. What, what do they say? What, what are the comments you get back from students? You know, they connect to the book in different ways. And I think that's part of the magic of Don Quixote. Everyone finds something to connect with in this book. And for some students, I mean, it talks to college students in very nice ways, in the sense that it gives you. Uh, the hope for to dream and to, to have the hope to find your dreams and to change the world if you follow the, your dreams. So to, and at the time, in, in some years when you are trying to become an adult, obviously that message is very powerful. I'm very excited about, well, I'm very proud that some of our students uh, have decided to continue towards graduate school in part because Don Quixote changed their lives. So that's really amazing and that makes me so happy. I mean, just for that, my whole career makes sense, you know what I mean? It's like, wow. So that's very nice. And now I'm having a new experience, actually. Is I'm teaching Don Quixote in English for the first time, and I'm loving it. I have some of my students here, and just loving it, because they don't have the language barrier. In my Don Quixote class in the Spanish department, we read the whole Don Quixote in Spanish, which is like a big deal, finishing your major in Spanish, reading the Quixote in Spanish. That's huge and very, very emotional, actually. Uh, but now we're reading it in English, so I see they are quicker getting it. <laughs> so I, I'm experimenting this semester, and I will be able to tell everybody how the experience goes. And actually, next week, I'm starting to teach a class for the senior college, Don Quixote, for people who are retired already. And I know they're going to give me different readings, different readings. So yeah, Don Quixote changes even for each individual. If you read it when you're a teenager, you're going to focus probably more on the adventure. If you read it later, love is going to, all these love <laughs> stories that are so exciting are going to, to yes, you know, capture you. If you read it later, like me right now, you're going to see it probably like something related to middle age uh-huh. and how middle age makes you go look back and, you know, re- revise your dreams maybe and make, it, make them happen. Maybe it's your last chance the next few years. Uh-huh. So I don't know. It has so many different readings. I hear all kinds of, of reactions and 
since I never, I never present one reading or my reading or anybody's reading as the correct one, I think they have the freedom to just explore through literature uh, their own selves, which is the goal, I think, with literature and with art in general. Actually, the course that I'm teaching about Don Quixote is not Don Quixote, the novel written by Cervantes, but it's adaptations of Don Quixote. So it's Don Quixote in cinema, in graphic novels, in theater, in music. And I feel very privileged to get to teach Don Quixote without having to teach the novel because <laughs> it really is very hard. And there's a saying in Spain that... Spaniards don't read Don Quixote because it is so hard. So there actually is someone who is now doing a translation of Don Quixote to modern Spanish so that it's more accessible to Spaniards so that hopefully people will read it. I have to admit, my goal for my class is I'm hoping that my students will be inspired to engage with Cervantes' novel after they've explored all these different adaptations and seen how exciting and then how flexible Don Quixote is and how every single version reworks him in a way that makes him, well, continually meaningful or relevant for the current moment. So right now we're reading, for example, a graphic novel, Rod Davis's uh, 2002 graphic novel in which Don Quixote is a comic book character. But because of the very simple line drawings and the sequence of images and some of the comic uh, graphic novel techniques, it's really very complicated and very interesting. It engages the students on a sort of on an intellectual philosophical level. It's able to reproduce some of the plays with reality and fiction that are fundamental to Cervantes' novel, but doing it in a context that makes it really accessible. And the students feel like they can grasp it, they can understand the material world, which is really hard since our world is so different. They can imagine the scenes, they can understand what goes on when, so when, they're the, when he runs into the windmill and how exactly the horse falls over and he gets trampled by the horse, because you can see it. And um, it really does seem to help students engage and understand and appreciate some of these comic ridiculousness yeah. Yeah. of the behavior, but also really appreciate and understand, well, the actions of the novel. Yeah. Well, and Don Quixote has, has he, uh, he's, he's very quick to say, no, no, this is the way it happens. A knight would do this, a knight errant would do whatever. So he's sort of schooling people all along the way, even yes. people who don't know that you know, he's living in a, in a yes. fantasy. So was this, um, you mentioned that the novel wasn't really a terribly admired form before this uh, book came along, but were there significant um, um, reality slash fiction um, uh, pieces of literature before, I mean, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Don Quixote in some yeah. way? Yes, yes. Yes, uh, there were some what we call picaresque tests in the 16th century uh, that were kind of beginning to, to introduce characters that, for example, change and evolve from the beginning of the book to the end of the book. They have an inner life, which is one of the characteristics of the modern novel, right? Mm -hmm. We don't have plain characters, but characters that are affected by relations to other characters and inner life. That's very important. That is something we take for granted now, but it wasn't like that in the 16th century, for example, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and what Don Quixote does very well, almost for the first time, is creating a novel that is not, is not based on ep episodes that are not connected. But there is like a main story, um, like a trunk, right? Like that, that unites everything that happens in the novel, and then all the other ones. 
all the other stories with the, the secondary characters complement, supplement this other story, and everything is related to everything else. Mm -hmm. This is better than in the second part. So don't think you have read Don Quixote if you just read the first part, because <laughs> that's not the whole story. You have to read the second part of Don Quixote. That's where things make finally sense. My feeling is always that Don Quixote, the first part, he was trying and he was struggling. And he was maybe worried about how things would be received by the audience, by the readers. But then he got famous. So he had that already. I mean, he had some authority. He, who was all against authority, no, but that could be another topic for discussion, but anyway. So uh, he had this authority, this, 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 um, he had some rights to do things different. And actually, something that Denise is probably going to comment on, someone, we don't know who, decided to write a, a false a part of Don Quixote. And that made Cervantes really angry, right? Mm -hmm. So he... I think that made him first finish the book, which is very nice. Thank you very much, Miguel de Cervantes. And the following year he died, the year after the publication in 1616 he died. So maybe if this other guy, Avellaneda, hadn't written the second, the false part, we wouldn't have Don Quixote. And, and actually I think that he also put an effort to make a great book, not a good book, but a great book that would be completely different from this uh, from this other book that was, if you read it, you will realize that even if Cervantes were probably sleep, he would write a better book than the other guy. <laughs> but I think that Avellaneda really helped us to have what we have today. Mm -hmm. So the modern novel, this is the first one, but the inspiration for many others. I think that's part of the importance of this book. Yeah, yeah so we chose to call the, the subtitle of the symposium is Parody, plagiarism, and patrimony, because those are really the three stages of the trajectory of Don Quixote. It started as a parody of chivalric novels, perhaps with the desire to destroy the chivalric novels as a popular genre. But thanks to this false Quixote that was published, it was plagiarized very, very early. And Cervantes chose to incorporate the plagiarized text into his novel. So he, he, Excuse me, Don Quixote meets readers of the plagiarized text. And he even decides to explicitly not do what the, the star of the plagiarized version does. So it even affects the content and the plot of the second part of Don Quixote. And then Cervantes does die the following year. Almost immediately, there's a tremendous production of theatrical works and poetry and of and we can continue to the present with musicals and films, et cetera, based on Don Quixote. Those aren't plagiarisms. They're sort of appropriations or rewritings. They don't violate mm -hmm. the author's rights mm -hmm. the way that Abeyaneda effectively did. But they continue to remake Don Quixote so that he is now ubiquitous, that we can think of the iconic image of uh, Sancho and Don Quixote as... as as um, Picasso drew and as you included in the publicity for this mm -hmm. session, um, that's immediately recognizable. It's really got iconographic value that everyone immediately recognizes those two figures. Well, you mentioned also uh, in a note we shared recently, A Walk in the Woods. Uh, yes. uh, yeah, make yeah. the connection there with Don Yeah, Quixote. so I was just watching, so of course A Walk in the Woods, which is the Bill Bryson's book, which is based upon his walking of the Appalachian Trails with a friend of his from Des Moines, Iowa. Um, when I was watching it, I was realizing that those two characters really interacted the way that Don Quixote and Sancho did. So Stephen Katz, who's the friend, he's got a large body, he's very earthy, he gets into a lot of situations involving women, 
Okay, Sancho didn't do that, but Sancho was earthy. He ate a lot. They both have sort of grotesque bodies. Stephen Katz wears funny-looking socks, and so you're always looking at his body in a very funny way. Whereas Bill Bryson, he's educated, he's refined. As they're walking through the woods, he'll give a little speech about rocks, or he'll talk about these trees, and these are the pearls of wisdom that drip from his lips, just like Don Quixote, who will instruct Sancho often in the ways of life. And so I was really struck by this similarity. So it's a road movie. They're hiking, but it's a road movie. They interact with each other in a very similar way. And I think that in the case of Walk in the Woods, they may well be sort of filtered through uh, Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn um, as a sort of American Don uh, Quixote and Sancho Panza going out on the, uh, and trying to remake the world, even as, well, Tom Sawyer we know is a trickster, and so he tricks people, and so that doesn't happen in, in A Walk in the Woods. But uh, it was mm -hmm. very, very interesting that these are mm -hmm. such fundamental characters that these illusions just are second nature. We don't even think about them, yeah. that they're just part of our association with... Yeah. Two buddies on the road, and they are Don Quixote and Sancho. Yeah. How about Shyamalan Reeves? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Reeves. Like, yeah. I saw that yeah. for the first yeah. time. I thought, this is a female version of Don Quixote, yeah. And, yeah. and with those powerful female voices, which is something I don't want to finish this section without mentioning. <laughs> One of the big um, things about Don Quixote is that we have almost, I wouldn't say for the first time, but we have some of the strongest female voices in literature certainly and before the 17th century, but even after that. So female characters are, are really impressive. And as some of the, it's, it's part of the, what my students really love about this book, yeah. having these women uh, using yeah. language to, to mm -hmm. defend their rights yeah. and to mm -hmm. create their own lives, mm -hmm. the same way as Don Quixote does, for example. Yeah. And I do have to say, that is one of the minuses with many adaptations of Don Quixote. It for is. whatever reason, they cut the women out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or, or, mm -hmm. Dulcinea gets a bigger role, but all these other fascinating, powerful female characters, alas, are sort of dropped by the side. That's why you have to read the book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow, well, I hate to bring this uh, segment to the end, but I, I think we have to. Um, so I want to say thank you so much to Denise Filios mm -hmm. and Ana Rodriguez-Rodriguez. And again, they're co-organizers of the 2015 Oberman International Programs Humanities Symposium titled Parody, Plagiarism, and Patrimony, Don Quixote in the Age of Electronic Reproduction. And if you'd like to attend any of the talks, lectures, concerts, and so on related to that, you can find a lot of information on the website. Uh, we hope you'll stay with us for part two in this series on Don Quixote. And uh, all World Canvas programming is available on YouTube, iTunes, UITV, and the International Programs website, which is international.uiowa.edu. And you can learn more about Film Scene at icfilmscene.org. So I'm Joan Kerr, and that's it for this first portion of World Canvas. Thanks for being with us, and we'll see you next time. Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr, and we're joining you from Film Scene in downtown Iowa City. This is part two of our series on Don Quixote's four-century saga. We're discussing this wonderful piece of literature and the effect it's had on writers, artists, thinkers, and cultures all over the world. Why has it remained so popular and held such a high position in world literature? What makes it so special? And how have others adapted the novel and the images of Don Quixote and Sancho Panza to tell their own stories? 
uh, as we delve into this discussion, please know that tonight's program is sort of a preview of the Oberman International Program's Humanities Symposium, which will be taking place in October on the 22nd to 24th here on the campus of the University of Iowa. And there's lots of information online if you're interested in attending any of those events. Uh, also, those of you who ha are here for the first time, thank you for coming. Anyone watching this broadcast, please know that you're welcome to join us in the audience uh, at any live program. You can also find our programs later on UITV, YouTube, iTunes, and the International Programs website. So in this segment, we're going to focus on Quixote adaptations. And our guests are Pablo Rodriguez Balbontin, who's just next to me here. Hi. Thank you. Uh, he's a graduate student in the Spanish department and a research assistant at the International Writing Program. Next to him is Kathleen Edwards, chief curator at the University of Iowa Museum of Art. Hi, Kathleen. Hi. And at the far end, we have Catherine Mormond, who's education and outreach coordinator at the Old Capitol Museum. Thank you for coming, Catherine. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So we have a lot to talk about here. Some of it relates to uh, ongoing showings, uh, exhibits that will be taking place in the fall. But I uh, wanted to start with you, Pablo, yeah. and just talk a little bit about this character from a very different time in a very different place and how this novel and what goes on in this novel, sensibilities in the novel, how they spread throughout the world um, to so many different cultures, you know, in 400 mm -hmm. years since it was written. Mm, well, I think that the question that Cervantes asked himself when he started writing the novel is still a very fresh question. Uh, when we watch uh, shows such as Game of Thrones or when we spend millions of dollars watching uh, The Lord of the Rings or buying those books, uh, we are act doing exactly what the society of uh, the Cervantes period uh, was doing, uh, basically reading epic fantasy for the sake of sheer entertainment. Now Cervantes, in my opinion, uh, thought that sheer entertainment can be actually dangerous. And he said, do we deserve better works? Do we need irony? Do we need parody about these works just to think about our present daily life and about the historical circumstances that we live in? So I think this is why uh, Cervantes is being adapted so much because his question is actually very genuine and we actually tend to distract ourselves all the time, especially with all this kind of entertainment. So when you see uh, uh, earlier uh, Professor Denise has told about role-playing games, for instance, uh, this is a genre that evolved from uh, basically uh, The Lord of the Rings when uh, video games started being a thing. And actually Tolkien was, uh, I mean, he read Don Quixote and he was also familiar with the chivalry novels. Mm -hmm. So you can, you can see all of that influence going on now, what you cannot think that often is the ironic component, right? What you don't think that often is the parody. When our kids are watching uh, The Avengers, when they're watching The Lord of the Rings, when they're playing video games, we worry about, is this just escapism? Do we want a better education for them? So these are very, very contemporary questions that Cervantes was actually addressing 400 years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, you grew up in Spain, mm -hmm. and uh, so you come from Spanish culture. Mm -hmm. Tell me how this book played in your life before you came here. When I was a child, actually in 1979, so I was like two. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, in the past century, wow. Um, <laughs> so 
there was there was for instance like a cartoon TV show that was super popular about Don Quixote. Oh, yeah. So that was kind of our first reception as kids of of you know these very emblematic uh, characters of our uh, national identity. Then when you started going to a school and high school, the process is basically that you learn to hate uh, Don Quixote and, and every book ever written uh, because of basically bad pedagogy, but that's, that's another problem. Um, so eventually what happens with that book, and it's experience that I, that I truly recommend to everyone, what happens with that book is that there is this moment where you say, okay, you have to read it. Because, well, in my case, because I'm studying humanities in Spain, so it's, it's, it's just an act of shame of saying, no, I didn't read it. So you have to. So, so you end up reading the book, and what you're expecting is something that is not going to be that entertaining, that clever, or that good. Because it's impossible that a book that has been around for 400 years can be that good, right? And then when you read it, you say, whoa. It is actually that good. <laughs> and, that, and that is the surprise. The surprise is to find in official discourse and in official canon something that is actually very, very, very experimental, yet delightful. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that it's part of the magic of the book. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things you suggested we might talk about is fantasy and madness as a political instrument. Yeah. Um, uh, thank you for the question. Mm -hmm. um, Let's talk a bit about the windmills, which are kind of the icon, right, of, of, of the reception of the novel. I mean, most people don't know about Don Quixote, but they say, oh, yeah, the windmills guy. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> so, so that, that, that is kind of a problem, actually, and it's a problem of how pervasive and dangerous uh, metaphors can be. Uh, if you think of fantasy as being a product of sheer imagination, uh, something that it's not grounded in the historical and political conditions of, 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 a, of, an, of an era, of a time, you can, you can misread a lot of, of what that writer is actually saying. Uh, so to me, uh, the episode of, of, of the windmill, it's, it's a good example of that. You have a lot of adaptations and a lot of works of art uh, that actually play with this theme of the knight or the hero uh, destroying uh, symbols of power. Uh, you have, for instance, I don't know if you know the movie, uh, The Fight Club, for instance. Uh, in that movie, the whole movie ended with uh, what today would be a very shocking image uh, for world uh, audiences. It ends with, with the collapse of, of skyscrapers. And indeed, the metaphor of Cervantes was that of crushing himself into infrastructure, right? Into a building. So it's a powerful metaphor. Um, but if we just take it as a metaphor, we are misreading it. You have to be always aware of the context of those metaphors. So the fail of Don Quixote is in that episode, which has been romanticized of, you know, the warrior fighting the sublime, trying to always overcome impossible difficulties and so on and so forth. This is mostly the, the reading that we have, which is a reading from the 19th century. Uh, now, if you, if you go deeper 
in the context of the novel, you're going to find that Don Quixote is not that much a warrior as he is a speaker and a listener. So the problem with that metaphor is that maybe, and that's of course my reading, there are 400 years of readings of Don Quixote <laughs> and they are great. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but maybe what, what Cervantes is telling us there is that is not the way. The way is actually to meet people, listen to them, and come out with very good ideas. Most of the chapters of those two books are about that, are about Don Quixote and Sancho meeting all sort of people, even enemies of the Spanish crown. And that is key here, because this is a novel written by a war veteran that had fought that enemy, and that suddenly is opening his good hand, because he was handicapped from one of them because of, that, of, of those fights, he's opening that hand to dialogue. And I find that kind of place in Don Quixote uh, very brilliant for his moment. So when you see those metaphors, when you see those parodies, think that maybe irony and parody in those works were also a political device, were a way to say something that the statu quo didn't want to hear. But there was always a perfect excuse whenever anyone pointed out at Don Quixote saying something, Cervantes would say, he's mad. <laughs> don't listen to him he's the mad guy so think about that kind of stuff because we tend too much to rely just on the surface of metaphors and then they get into the realm of our fantasies and our imaginations and we think that they serve every kind of purpose they don't they can be contextualized and they need to be contextualized. And that's something that you're going to find in a lot of adaptations. Orson Welles, for instance, he fought for 30 years to adapt his version of Don Quixote. And when you see uh, or when you hear uh, from him how he envisioned Don Quixote, he envisioned Don Quixote in the 20th century, Spain, fighting against the ideologies of Franco's dictatorship and then the post-war and he even sent uh, Sancho and Quixote to the moon. He actually dismissed that idea and he debunked uh, all that he, he had because uh, during the 60s, the US got to the moon and then he said, oh, that, that's, that's not a place for mystery anymore. So, so that, let's get rid of that. So think about that kind of ideas. I mean, metaphors can be a political device. And in the case of, of adaptations, they have to. So the good adaptation of Don Quixote, to me, in my humble opinion, is, is the one that actually respects those aspects and don't care about the contextualization of, of, of the novel in certain periods just for the sheer of, you know, uh, seeing some armors or whatever. Mm. Wow, thank you, Pablo. Um, well, well, let's talk to you, Kathleen, a little bit about two exhibits that the Museum of Art is putting on connected this whole symposium and based, of course, on Quixote, chivalry, and the idea of caprice. Sure. Mm. Well, thank you, Anna and Denise, for contacting the Art Museum to collaborate with you all and everyone else on this wonderful project. The Art Museum um, 
has uh, the ability to collaborate with almost every department on campus, and we were really um, fortunate to discover uh, with this theme that, in fact, we had works of art um, by various artists that specifically um, address the themes in, in Don Quixote, if not, um, in fact, illustrate in reality um, some of the different scenes. So my former assistant, Renelle Luth, curated a small show. It's over in the IMU, and it's called Ingenious Gentlemen Depictions of Don Quixote and Chivalry. And what's wonderful about um, this small focus show is that we were able to put out a recent uh, acquisition. It's a wonderful watercolor by Sir John Tenniel of 1883, and it's titled How Don Quixote made ready his armor. Um, and, and that, of course, that particular scene is related to, I guess, one translation to the text, instead of a helmet, there was only a simple morion or steel cap. But he dexterously supplied this want by contriving a sort of visor of pasteboard. He looked upon it as his most excellent helmet. And this wonderful illustration is in our exhibition and so interesting to think of some of these visual artists, uh, obviously Picasso, Dali, come to mind when you think of artists who are inspired by the novel. Um, but Tenniel also, as you know, illustrated The White Knight in Alice in Wonderland, um, which is also likely a self-portrait, uh, as, as the portrait is in the IMU and sort of a personation of Don Quixote. And I think that you see this happening with visual artists who kind of take on the, the personality in sort of a self-portrait or combined portrait of, of sorts. Um, and so I think that's a particularly pertinent topic that I think will be brought up for the symposium. And related uh, a little bit to what um, the conversation about other artists Francisca Goya Lucientes comes to mind as, as taking the, the, the context into uh, the later centuries when you look at his uh, Caprichos and his Disasters of War, which are on view in another exhibition in the IMU, a larger exhibition from the museum's per permanent collection called Caprice and Influence. So it's about sort of Goya and the idea of, of caprice, which is related to parody and fantasy um, um, in, in that context of, of, of France and Spain at, at war, um, if not other social and political um, uh, bodies at war, let's say, uh, and, and use this genre of caprice. Um, uh, and also then influence contemporary artists. So we have Prince by Enrique Chagoya, who is an uh, American artist born in Mexico, who then is influenced by Goya's Prince. And, and so we have this sort of uh, lineage, I think, in, that kind of parallels what many, many artists have done with uh, the, the novel. We also have, just for your enjoyment, um, uh, Goya's magnificent oil painting, Don Manuel Garcia de la Prada, which is a, a full-length portrait of a gentleman, a Spanish gentleman, 
um, on loan from the Des Moines Arts Center. And so it's not really a caricature and it's not really satirical, um, but there are these subtle messages about class, about uh, political sympathies, et cetera. Um, and I think it's interesting. Uh, Denise, I believe, her students are writing about um, the Ingenious Gentleman uh, uh, show. And uh, so we're really happy to have uh, this um, collaboration going. We've got a couple of speakers going. The other contemporary artists uh, who worked with this idea of Caprice from the Italian point of view is Keith Acapole, who is an emeritus professor who's in town and is giving a lecture uh, Thursday night. And then we have Stephanie Stepanak, who is an emeritus curator from the Boston MFA, who's actually going to review the museum's rare editions of the Goya Disasters of War. We have a first edition and a, probably a, one of 12 extant rare editions of the disaster. So we're getting yet another expert opinion. We're really happy to um, be involved in all these efforts. Wow. Well, uh, I know there's also an exhibit, or actually two different shows, at the Old Capitol Museum, drawn from special collections and other places on campus. Uh, Catherine, can you tell us about that? Yeah, so I have to say um, a little bit, though, uh, before I get to the exhibit. Uh, six months ago, if you told me that I was going to be reading Don Quixote, I would have probably laughed very hard, <laughs> because I just thought, oh, Don Quixote old, old book. Why would I be reading that? Uh, so when I got the opportunity um, to uh, read it and, and listen to it and to dive in uh, with all of these books at Special Collections, uh, I just have to say it has been such a pleasure. And it's, I'm, I've got goosebumps um, right now uh, being in here and talking about Don Quixote. It's like a, a gigantic book club. Um, and it's like a miniature, or a, you know, kind of like a theme semester. Um, so I'm, I'm just really grateful for this opportunity. Uh, so we do have a wonderful um, a collection of illustrations from uh, the books ranging from Don Quixote, um, various uh, novels, or excuse me, various publications, ranging from 1687 to 1933. And so what we did, because we can't um, have everyone just thumb through these old books, uh, we digitize some of the images and we have them uh, on display uh, at the Old Capitol Museum in the Keys Gallery. So they're really, they're really wonderful. And then we also have an exhibit on the second floor featuring art uh, that is done by uh, children, uh, all, uh, now I can't, is Ludmia here? Uh, she's the art teacher. No, Ludmia. Okay. Um, but all of these works of art done by children um, in connection with uh, Don Quixote. So it's, you have your black and white images, and then you have your very colorful interpretations. So uh, I would encourage everyone to go check it out. And we have a couple programs going on this semester as well. Uh, we're bringing in uh, the Edgar Whibble Puppet Theater uh, to do um, another adaptation of Don Quixote in November on the 14th, so uh, you're more than welcome to come to that. Uh, all, of, all of the programs at the museum are free. Uh, so that's November 14th. We'll have two uh, shows, 1.30 and 5.30. Um, but the, the illustrations, going back to the illustrations in the Keys Gallery, so um, 
illustrations of Don Quixote, imagination and interpretation, um, or interpretation of imagination, I should say. They're, they're just quite wonderful diving in um, to all of these. And one of the scenes that has stood out the most for me is not what I thought it would be, would be the, uh, the windmill scene, which at first I thought, oh, yes, I'm, I'm looking for these windmills when I was looking through the books and special collections um, to put the exhibit together. And I thought I would find all these windmills. And I didn't. And I was, I was like, wait, there, there must be something wrong here. Well, I didn't know the windmills hadn't been um, placed there until much later after uh, Cervantes wrote the book. So I thought that was quite interesting. But one of the scenes um, that really stood out to me was the scene with the lion. And seeing that represented by different illustrators in many different ways. You have lions that look like men with beards, and they have claws. And my favorite one, though, uh, is by Enric uh, Rickart uh, from 1933 uh, that illustrated um, it's in Spanish. And uh, I believe he was from Catalonia. Uh, but his lion just kind of... The viewer is looking into the cage of the lion of the lion standing at the edge, and you can see Don Quixote uh, out um, beyond the lion. And the lion's kind of looking back at the viewer like, really? He wants to fight me? <laughs> um, I'm going to take, you know, sit down and take a nap. Um, so it's really been a pleasure finding all of these images, and I'm so excited to see the, uh, the pieces that you have pulled together, Kathy, and... Um, with the Museum of Art, and we are borrowing a Museum of Art piece as well, Francisco Goya uh, of Cervantes, so it's quite interesting. Yeah. But yeah, it's just so much fun, so yeah. much fun. So. Yeah. Um, so, Pablo, let me bring it back to you and back to Spain again. We've heard about some of these artistic renderings or mm -hmm. sort of imaginings based on the book. Uh, can you think of something that you think is a particularly interesting art piece that uh, relates to Don Quixote, something that you have admired or found especially appealing? Um, well, it's not a very good piece at all, uh, <laughs> but it's, it's very uh, kind of symbolic of a generation uh, shift. Yeah. And it's uh, the publication of the first text adventure uh, this is a video game, one of the first kind of video games that ever existed. Those were uh, video games based on text. Uh, so you had to write what your character was doing. So the first text adventure in Spain was actually uh, Don Quixote, uh, the text adventure. It's a, it's a great title. Uh, and, and the game was not that good as you can imagine. Uh, it was the beginning of video games. Uh, but it's very symbolic of how video game, uh, sorry, how Don Quixote can uh, can be so uh, pervasive or ubiquitous, yeah. as as uh, Professor Denise said before. Mm -hmm. I mean, like for a community of programmers and game developers before the eighties, this game was nineteen seventy nine, actually maybe nineteen eighty, um, having the idea of let's make this impossible book, which is a book of books, and let's turn it into something briefly related with which later uh, would be known as the World Wide Web, a mm -hmm. labyrinth of texts uh, that evolve according to how uh, the user 
uh, move through them, right? So they try to do that. And as I said, it's not a very, very good game. Uh, but it's symptomatic of kind of a cultural mindset that whenever literature reaches a new milestone, there is Don Quixote there. There is still, you know, resonating through the minds of at least Spaniards. Oh, and, yeah. and that's very nice, I think. Oh, I think so, too. And one last question. You know, here, little kids for Halloween or mm-hmm. for fun would dress up as Batman or whatever. Mm-hmm. Did Spanish kids ever dress up as, as Don Quixote or Sancho Panza? I know of some kids uh, from people <laughs> in the audience that uh, <laughs> I've probably done that. Um, I did um, as a kid, not for Halloween, but you know, for uh, costume parties and that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's yeah. it's. Uh, I I I was Sancho. Uh, it's my <laughs> it's it's my favorite character. It's the most mundane character of the whole book. So yeah, no, it's it's a very common thing. Yeah. So, gosh, that's the end of this segment, and I want to say thank you so much to Pablo Rodriguez Balbontin and to Kathleen Edwards and Catherine Mormont. Thank you so much, and I, I know everybody will come and see these great shows. Looking forward to that, and um, please stay with us for part three of this program when we'll be looking at Don Quixote in world culture and music, and uh, that'll be a good one, too. So please uh, join us next time for World Canvas, and thank you very much for being with us this afternoon. Good night. Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr. Glad to have you all with us. This is the third portion of a program we're doing on Don Quixote and the four centuries of uh, the existence of this novel. And uh, we're also promoting some upcoming events here on campus that will happen in October, a big symposium related to Don Quixote. So um, I would like to invite anyone watching this program who may not know that you can attend as a member of the live audience, please do join us. We're in Film Scene, downtown in Iowa City, and uh, everyone is welcome. You can also find these programs, all of the World Campus series, online at uh, UITV, YouTube, or on iTunes, also at the International Programs website, international.uiowa.edu. So, in this third and final part of the series, our guests will explore Quixote and the world beyond the novel itself. We'll be looking at the global appeal of the virtuous but deluded knight-errant and his many exploits, and we'll talk about universal themes in the work and some of the musical manifestations that have become classics in their own right. Uh, Joining me for the discussion are Anna Barker, adjunct assistant professor of Russian literature in the Department of Asian and Slavic Languages and Literatures. And thanks for being here, Annie. Mm -hmm. William Jones is next to Anna Barker, and he's professor of music and conductor of the University of Iowa Orchestras and Opera. Thank you, William, for coming. And at the far end, we have Josh Sazon, director of the Iowa City Community Theater. Thank you for being here, Josh. So, uh, Anna. What is it about this novel that uh, connects with readers, writers, artists all over the world? Well, um, many people ask me, Anna, you have been reading all of these lovely um, Russian novels um, on the Pad Mall or on the steps of the Old Capitol. Why are you switching to Spanish literature? You don't even speak Spanish. Um, so I've been causing mayhem since 2010 when we read Anna Karenina out loud. Um, 2012, we read um, War and Peace out loud on the steps of the Old Capitol. And the University Symphony performed Tchaikovsky's 1812 Overture. Um, during that celebration of the 200th anniversary of the War of 1812. And at that point, I realized there's nothing in Russian literature who, that can beat 400 years um, anniversary of a novel. So 
Here's the novel that will be read out loud on the campus of the University of Iowa. It's only 900 pages, so much shorter than War and Peace. We can do this. Um, you, will, you will start seeing posters around town. We'll be reading on the 28th, 29th, 30th of September, and the 1st of October. It'll take us four days to read it, so please sign up to be readers. It'll be absolutely phenomenal and so much fun. The Tuesday sign-up sheet is already full, so, so talk to me if you would like to have your 20 minutes of fame. Um, and then, there's a, so this event is happening at the end of September. Um, and then on Thursday this week, there will be a party, a birthday party, a four, 400th birthday party for a literary character at the Old Capitol. Um, and we will have a birthday cake that will actually have this iconic Picasso image on it um, with uh, four zero zero candles. And we'll sing happy birthday at 6 p.m. at the Old Capitol, and then slice the cake and celebrate the literary character. Um, but what I, what I really need to um, address um, in the context of Quixote is how incredibly ubiquitous that image has become. Anyone can look at a thin man sitting on a thin horse and a chubby man sitting on a donkey and say, but of course it's Don Quixote. And the question is, why? Um, and one of the events that was organized um, to celebrate this wonderful novel actually happened last Friday. It was at Phillips Hall and um, five writers from the IWP read prepared remarks about how important Quixote is for 21st century writer living in the shadow of Quixote. And I wanted to read um, just one statement um, from the Brazilian writer who said the following, Don Quixote may be one of the most infinite novels. The subject it approaches are sanity and madness, fact and fiction, reality and imagination, the power of literature, and those subjects are far from exhausted. So 400 years later, we are still discussing this, these issues. And also what this writer addressed is the fact that Quixote is metafiction at a time where metafiction was just an idea. It, it is a book that is so conscious of its own presence. It is a book that is conscious of itself and other books. It is a book that is conscious of translation. It's a book about, about um, its own presence in the world of um, its creator, Cervantes, and in our world today. And, um, um, remarkably, this book has been inspiring writers for centuries um, since its creation. And let me just read to you the, the very, very amusing and um, very charming um, notice that you may recognize as the notice for the quixotic adaptation in American literature, and that is The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. It was mentioned that Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn are very much the quixotic characters in American literature. And this is what Mark Twain had to say at the beginning of the novel. And of course, his dialogue with Cervantes is present here because Quixote starts with the words, idle reader. And there's a prologue to the reader where the author is having a dialogue with the reader before the novel even begins. And this is, um, this is uh, Mark Twain's dialogue with Cervantes. He says, persons attempting to find a motive in this narrative will be prosecuted. Persons attempting to find a moral in it will be banished. Persons attempting to find a plot will be shot. <laughs> by, by order of the author. <laughs> so a lesson to us all who are attempting to find meaning in Cervantes. Um, let, me, uh, let me mention another adaptation of Cervantes in American literature, and let me just read the first sentence of that novel. You'll recognize what it is. Call me Ishmael. Uh, but of course, Moby Dick is yet another adaptation of the Quixotic Quest, and let me just read to you one sentence from that first paragraph. Whenever I find myself growing grim about the mouth, whenever it is damn drizzly November in my soul, whenever I find myself involuntarily pausing before coffin warehouses. And Ishmael continues, that's when it's time for me to set out to sea. Um, all of us have experienced that moment when, we, when there's a 
drizzly November experience in our soul, and we set out on our own journeys, on our own journeys of self-discovery. And what is so important about Quixote, it's a book about a quest, it's a book about our own self-discovery, but also it is a book about us listening to other people's stories. And Quixote does so much listening in this novel, and through that listening, he finds out a great deal about himself. Um, let me make a reference another about another. It seems like the American experience of self-discovery very much still lends itself to this, this kind of quixotic interpretation. And let me mention another uh, writer, um, John Steinbeck, who of course um, had his own lovely quixotic experience of traveling through America and that, that narrative is called Travels with Charlie. His lovely sidekick was his poodle, Charlie. And he did travel from New York City through the entirety um, of the country went north to Maine, um, then to the Pacific Northwest, down to Salinas, where, um, where his home was, and then back to New York City. And this is what he had to say in Travels with Charlie. When I was very young, and the urge to be someplace else was on me, I was assured by mature people that maturity would cure the itch. When years um, described me as mature, the remedy prescribed to me was middle age. In middle age, I was assured that greater age would calm my fever, and now that I'm 58, perhaps senility will do the job. <laughs> but of course it didn't. And imagine my absolute horror and disgust when I actually visited the Salinas Museum and I found out that the camper that was made for this journey of Steinbeck was called Rocinante. I was, I was furious because that was my idea and he stole it from me, of course. <laughs> but I wanted to travel across the United States at one point listening to Quixote, uh, uh, a recording of Quixote and just discover how much I can find about myself in that book within the context of the American experience. Um, this, this unfolding of the narrative where you listen to other people's stories is an integral part of the Quixotic quest. And um, when you see this iconic image um, of, of a man setting out on this journey, um, just think of an iconic American movie, um, um, Easy Rider, where you have um, Peter Fonda, Dennis Hopper, and Jack Nicholson setting out on a quest. And Jack Nicholson is very young and very handsome. He's a minor character on this quest, but the Dennis Hopper and Peter Fonda characters discover America by writing through the landscape of America on the very, very American um, Rocinantes, Harley-Davidson's. Um, and then just a, a completely goofy example, and I'm sure all of you will be laughing, um, is a movie like Borat, <laughs> where the main character is a skinny, goofy guy who is discovering America for himself, was a very adorable, chubby sidekick. Their Rocinante is an ice cream truck, and their Dulcinea is the immortal Pamela Anderson. <laughs> so, so this experience is eternal, and we're discovering ourselves in this experience as much as we're uh, discovering the experience itself. And I just would like to end with a quote from actually a Russian 19th century writer, Ivan Turgenev, who wrote an essay entitled Hamlet and Don Quixote. And in that essay, he explored the possibility that in so many ways, um, 19th century Russian male characters, those wonderful superfluous young men that are overexplored in 19th century Russian literature, are very much though either quixotic characters who act before they think or overthink their experience like Hamlet and, and fail to um, achieve resolution. And this is what um, one of Turgenev's characters says in the novel, Rudin. Do you remember, began Rudin, do you remember what Quixote says to his squire when he's leaving the court of the Duchess? Freedom, he says, my dear Sancho, is one of the most precious possessions of man and happy is he 
to whom heaven has given a bit of bread and who needs not be indebted to anyone. What Don Quixote felt then, I feel now. God grant, my dear friend, that you too may someday experience this feeling. And so ultimately, it is a novel of self-discovery and freedom. Wow, thank you, Annie. That's fantastic. Wow. Um, well, so we're going to move now into the world of classical music and talk to Bill Jones. Um, I have one piece in mind because I know that you're going to be performing this piece, uh, the beautiful tone poem by Richard Strauss, um, here in a couple of weeks, I guess. Uh, but there may be other pieces in the classical repertoire that relate somehow to Don Quixote. Um, let us explore that. Well, there's probably over well, several dozen works that have been inspired uh, um, to composers. Uh, everything from opera to ballet <coughs> to tone poems to uh, voice and uh, even a, a harp and violin recently uh, has uh, surfaced from by, by Andreessen <coughs> to a rap piece by the funky Aztecs. <laughs> um, so th it, uh, it covers everything from, uh, as, as far as classical music is concerned, we know that Boismoitier and Telemann um, had written um, operas uh, based on um, Don Quixote. Massenet wrote an opera. Uh, Manuel de Falla had a puppet opera that he wrote. Um, Offenbach uh, wrote mm -hmm. incidental music to plays. Um, this was all inspired um, by this particular character and the whimsicalness of it, um, which certainly led to Richard Strauss. Uh, Strauss actually started writing a, a type of music that he referred to as um, tone poems, um, tone dictum, um, which kind of followed what Liszt had originally uh, started writing. Franz Liszt. Uh, called his, though, symphonic poems. And, um, but they were basically the same, like Les Prelude, trying to, to have um, an extended piece of music that was following a story or telling a story in one movement, not broken up in segments like the, um, the symphonies were that preceded them. Um, we know that, that Strauss was born, actually, in, in 1864. Mahler was... Uh, 1860, Sibelius, 1865. They were great symphonists. Rachmaninoff, 1875. Uh, so you had Strauss going in one direction and all those other writing than still the, the four movement works. But Strauss wanted to tell a story with his. And the second tone poem that he wrote was based on Shakespeare when he wrote Macbeth. Um, and then he, he did also Sprach Zarathustra, Nietzsche, and uh, so it was sort of natural that he would look to something like Cervantes for one of his subjects. Um, and then he only takes certain portions um, of the adventures, and he doesn't do them in the order that the book uh, carries them through, but um, he, he does them for dramatic purposes that you can have something that's, that's uh, fast and energetic or something that's more uh, relaxing because otherwise uh, it wouldn't work within the, the music framework. Uh, but he does take us through the windmill 
Then he takes us through the sheep, and he takes us through the, the wooden um, horse and, and uh, riding down the, the stream in the boat, etc. Um, but what he does is he depicts all of these particular kinds of, of um, characters with variations. So you have your, your main themes that, that uh, Strauss attaches to, um, to Quixote, um, which he assigns to cello. And I think the reason that maybe he uses cello is because it has kind of a bold sound. It can be lyrical, um, but it's not heroic. Strauss used the horn for his heroes in every one of his pieces. Don Juan, Ein Heldenleben, always the horn is the, uh, the strong character. So I think he used the cello for a different purpose and avoided the horn. Um, and he used three instruments for Sancho, a bass clarinet, a tenor tuba, which is like a baritone or euphonium, and viola. And I think he used those because they're kind of naive. They're sincere. They're not greatly appreciated instruments. <laughs> so they all kind of fit the characterization that I think he was after. Um, and he has had one of the, the best knacks of orchestration that any composer had had up to his particular period of time. Um, so the way he depicts all of these adventures is incredible, you know, where you can actually hear him flying up into the air after he stabs the windmill and crashes down to the ground. Um, and when all the sheep are out in the, uh, the, the fields that, before they spy them, um, the way he depicts the sheep, he has the horns, trumpets, clarinets all going... So it goes until he starts charging the sheep, and then you hear that as he's running in for on Rosinante, and and again you can hear the results when he's hit, knocked off his horse, and falls, and all the the percussion, the rest of the instruments depict that all the way through. So he uh, is very picturesque. Um, in his description of them. And I think we all think when you're thinking about a musical version of, of uh, Don Quixote, we think about Strauss. Um, and on, on the concert that we're going to be doing, uh, we'll start the concert kind of in an odd way. We start with uh, Ravel, because we're going to do um, his Don Quixote and Dulcinea. Uh, Jean Moriello will be singing that particular um, three-set uh, piece. They're very quick. And then we're going to do selections from Mitch Lee's Man of La Mancha. Uh, so we'll do the I, Don Quixote, and, and Dulcinea, and Sancho singing the, the I Really Like Him. <laughs> and we'll have Aldanza, and then obviously the the Impossible Dream will be the, the closer of that. Then the second half will be the Strauss. And what's the date? Uh, the September date is September 30th, 30th in the Iowa Memorial Union Fantastic. Main Lounge. Wow. That's uh, 7.30 on Fantastic. September 30th. And we'll interrupt the reading out loud. 
<laughs> so that everyone could go and attend this wonderful symphony conference. <laughs> we'll quit at seven that day. Very good, very good. Thank you, William. So, Josh, um, tell us about uh, Man of La Mancha and your experience with it. Uh, well, I was approached by Ana Rodriguez Rodriguez when the Iowa City Community Theater did this, uh, uh, this production of this uh, probably about two years back and asked, well, whether we might be interested in putting it back on two years after. Uh, and by gosh, we did, sort of, kind of. Um, <laughs> none of, the, uh, none of the, um, the, the actors in that particular production uh, was able to do this particular show, this particular uh, concert production. Uh, we did get quite a few other people from the School of Music, though. We have John Muriello is actually playing Sancho Panza. We have Stephen Swanson, who is doing uh, Cervantes Quixote. Uh, Kristen Berndt de Grazia is doing uh, Aldonza Dulcinea, and we have um, the rest of the cast are people from the community. I have to admit, I feel like a bit of a fraud here because this is not a uh, this is not a production that's necessarily connected with the university. Even if we do have quite a few people from the university, our music director is uh, Ed Kotick, who is a uh, professor emeritus from from the School of Music. So there's a lot of connections there as well. Uh, the show itself goes up on the 24th of October. It is the uh, it is the final event, I guess, of the symposium proper. It will be held at the uh, Riverside Recital Hall, 7:30, and free of charge. Um, so if your uh, your interest in Man of La Mancha was sweated by 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 the uh, by the concert, please come and see the whole thing. It's uh, <laughs> It's a little bit different um, for those uh, um, people who are very well versed in the novel Don Quixote. They will probably uh, scoff and turn their noses up. <laughs> it's not the most um, faithful adaptation, nor was it meant to be. It's a, uh, in fact, the whole story of Don Quixote is, in a sense, a play within a play. The, the main story being uh, Cervantes, the author Cervantes, being on trial for his life. Uh, uh, he gets thrown into prison, and basically prisoners gang up on him. They take his precious manuscript, and, and they put him on trial. Why should we not just throw this manuscript into the fire? It, it's a waste of paper. No value whatsoever. And the story basically is how he justifies it. Um, as I said, not necessarily the most faithful of adaptations, but I think the spirit of Don Quixote is, is very much present in, uh, in, the, uh, in the musical. And that may account to uh, why it has remained popular for as long as it has. It first came out in 1965. Fifty years later, we're still doing it. Okay, so I was a little girl when... Yeah, yeah. Please go ahead. <laughs> Just going to say that I, while I was living in New York, one Sunday afternoon, I was walking around in Washington Square Park and just sort of in the village and kind of walked over and I saw this little marquee that said, Man of La Mancha. And I hadn't heard anything about it, didn't know anything about it, but I thought didn't have anything that afternoon. So I walked up to the box office, bought a ticket, and walked in. And there was Richard Kiley <laughs> singing. It was magic. That's what led me back to the real novel. So it wasn't that it was, you know, the other way around. It was sort of 
you know, I had to read it. I probably was Cliff Notes when I was in school. Um, so it was marvelous to, to rediscover uh, Cervantes that way that then brought me back. So that was a, and I, then I had to name my car Dulcinea. <laughs> well, some of you who might be around my age, I'm sure, uh, first came to knowledge of Don Quixote through Man of La Mancha and The Impossible Dream, such a fantastic and wonderful song. And, you know, uh, however it relates in truth to the novel, it's a wonderful thing when a new creation can somehow emerge from something from very long ago with a different original conception, and you know, then you have another new piece of art that grew out of it. And that was what makes it an infinite book. It's an infinite experience. Our journey through life is just as infinite as Quixote's quest, and it's an infinite book that lends itself to endless personal interpretations, and it makes it very meaningful for every single one of us at different points in our lives. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, gosh, thank you, Josh Sazon and uh, William Jones and Anna Barker for being with us for this final uh, portion of this program on Don Quixote. And thank you, all of you, for coming here this afternoon. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have. Please join us here at Film Scene next time. Our next program will be on October 13th, and we have a different topic. It's the evolution of climate change, 25 years and counting. We have very, very good guests on their program, and I hope you'll be able to join us. Please remember that you can find all of these programs recorded at international.uiowa.edu and many other platforms you can be linked to there. So I'm Joan Kerr. Thanks for being here. Uh, Thank you, Film Scene, and we'll see you all next time. Good night. (laughs)